Well, I'm not sure exactly what that was, but things have obviously gotten rather loose around here. We take the offering, we sing one song, and then I preach. Actually, we've got one more. No. <laughs> Scott will be leading us in Ave Maria. <laughs> As I said, things have gotten loose around here. <laughs> Last service. I mean, we sing my father's real great song. I get, start getting ready to come up, and he moves that capo thing. And I'm going, what? What are you doing? I haven't preached for three months, and, yeah, that was tough. It's a good thing. I told him it's a good thing it was a good song. I cannot, uh, I, I cannot begin to tell you um, how good it is uh, to be back with you uh, at Alliance Bible Fellowship this morning. I want to take this opportunity to um, thank you, thank this church, thank the elders um, for the opportunity that they provide its pastors. Um, every five years of service, we get a three-month sabbatical to go and do something else, and, and we did go and do something else, and it was wonderful. I'm not going to give a report about that this morning, but perhaps uh, other time, uh, but our time in Lebanon, for example, was just uh, off the charts, and thank you for making that uh, possible um, for us. I'm also very thankful for the men, uh, for the staff uh, who and the elders who very ably f- uh, took care of this church uh, over the last few months, as they always do. I'm very thankful for all of them, and I'm thankful for the men who, f- who filled this pulpit, the five men, uh, over the past three months. I've listened to all but about uh, one and a half sermons, and they did a fantastic job, and I'm very thankful for them. And would you show your appreciation to them? As Lloyd said, I am going to begin for Timothy this morning. I'm going to do that by way of survey. He was born in Tarsus of the Roman province of Cilicia, a prosperous city just off the northeastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, what we know as modern-day Turkey. While born into a Jewish family, he was also born a Roman citizen. No doubt, as was customary, he received three names at birth. We only know of two of them. His Jewish name was Saul, named after the first king of Israel, a hero from his ancestral tribe of Benjamin. His Greek name was Paul, which means little. And tradition tells us that he was indeed short and, frankly, not much to look at. But as a Roman citizen, he likely received an Uh, an education from one of the three outstanding universities in the Roman Empire since it was located right there in his hometown of Tarsus. Later, he spent time in Jerusalem studying at the feet of the famed rabbi Gamaliel, grandson of Hillel, perhaps the most famous Jewish rabbi of all time. Saul was therefore trained in the most advanced Greek and Jewish schools of his day. Now, he was a Jewish Jew, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, just like he was supposed to. He was probably, it was probably right after his 13th birthday that he was sent to Jerusalem to study with Gamaliel. He would have memorized lots of Scripture to include the first five, the first full five books of the Old Testament. Those books that you had trouble reading through, he memorized He would have learned how to interpret the Scripture under strict rabbinic tradition using a commentary, a Jewish commentary called the Talmud. 
He became a Pharisee, a group that was deeply committed to Judaism, deeply committed to the law of Moses and to their own fabricated brand of holiness. Uh, in fact, the word Pharisee comes from the word which means separated. They saw themselves as, as separate, aloof from others in their pursuit of holiness. I mean, the, the, the truth is this, this guy, this Saul, had it going on. After school in Jerusalem, he likely spent some time back in Tarsus teaching at the leading synagogue there. He became a veritable who's who in Jewish circles. Vocationally, he was in the residential building uh, industry. He was a maker of tents, no doubt just like his father. But his great love was the law and, and, and teaching it. He was grain, gaining a, a reputation as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, an up-and-coming Pharisee. As to this external fabricated observance of the law, well, he was blameless. I mean, he would have been voted most likely to succeed. Saul was, I mean, he was all that. At some point, as a young man, he was in Jerusalem, no doubt one of many trips there. It's even possible that he was a young member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this Jewish ruling body of the day. It was comprised of 70 members plus the high priest. Now, most assuredly, Saul, in those trips to Jerusalem, had heard about a, about a man from Nazareth named Jesus, this itinerant carpenter whose, whose teaching had, had baffled his, his colleagues and whose followers claimed that he was the Messiah. Uh, of course, there had been many self-proclaimed messiahs, and they had all faded away, as no doubt this one would. I'm sure Saul would have relished going a round or two with this would-be messiah. Uh, he would have taken him down a notch or two, but, 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 but the various political and religious parties like the other party, the Sadducees, uh, joined forces to eliminate Jesus. They had him cru rightly crucified for treason at the hands of the Romans, and well, that was that. And the, the rumors uh, began to circulate that this Jesus had, had risen from the dead. Uh, uh, sir, that was from his followers, but his movement called The Way actually began to grow. He gained followers throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. Groups were springing up everywhere. Now, on this particular trip to Jerusalem, one follower named Stephen actually had the audacity to preach the Old Testament that Paul knew by heart to his colleagues, can you believe it, of uh, the Sanhedrin. I mean, this man took things too far. And they rose up and rightly stoned him. They laid their coats at Saul's feet in the process, who vigorously gave assent to his death. Something about that event inflamed Saul's passions. He, he would now lead the opposition against this, this fledgling heretical group. He began persecuting followers of the way, these followers of Jesus, ravaging the church, hunting them down, beating them, dragging them off to prison and ultimately to court. Why, he himself led the vote against them, demanding the death penalty. Soon he was seeking and receiving letters of authorization to travel to outlying cities wherever uh, there were Jewish synagogues and wherever this sect had sprung up, and he would go opposing, persecuting, breathing out murderous 
accusations against its followers. One day, he received such letters to travel to Damascus, which is northeast of, of Israel in Syria, to, to find and arrest followers of this carpenter. But, but on the way, something startling happened. There was, there was suddenly a bright light, and Saul was knocked to the ground. And he, hear, he heard this voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul responded, who are you, Lord? Interesting, interesting choice of words. Saul somehow knew that this was a divine encounter. And, and the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That encounter changed Saul's life and the lives of millions since, to include mine. He was blinded by that bright light, so he had to be led by the hand to the home of a, another follower named Ananias in, in Damascus. You see, the Lord told Ananias that Saul was his chosen instrument to bear the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and before kings and to the Jews. Saul had been miraculously converted to the way, this movement that he once vehemently and violently opposed. Later, as he reflected on this time in his life, he, he would write, I, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet, yet, yet I was shown mercy because I acted, in ignorant, acted ignorantly in unbelief. And, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, is trustworthy saying, de deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am, I am foremost of all. Yeah, his life had forever been changed. Uh, Paul then spent time in Damascus, and instead of persecuting the church, proclaiming powerfully in the synagogue that Jesus, hey, he was indeed the Christ. The very truth that he, come, he had come to oppose, he was now proclaiming, promoting. It's no wonder that those who listened to him were amazed and said, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who call on his name and who, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? What's going on here? Saul was so successful in Damascus that soon those former colleagues from Jerusalem uh, sent people to kill him. They even enlisted local military and political support of, of the ethnarch under Aretas, the king. But th their plot became known to Saul, so he had to escape under the cover of darkness, being lowered through an opening in the city wall in a basket. He had tended to come to town as a hero of Judaism, accompanied by those temple police. He left alone, a fugitive, fleeing for his life, a follower of this carpenter-turned-Messiah, crucified but risen from the dead. You know, he went into Arabia, and he spent three years there, presumably in his own seminary being taught this time at the feet of Jesus. You see, he later told the Galatians that he learned this gospel not from any man, but by direct revelation from Jesus himself. 
Well, after those three years, he went back to Damascus for a time. Then he traveled to Jerusalem. His first time back uh, since leaving as a persecutor, now he's a follower. And he spent 15 days with Peter, the apostle Peter and James, the Lord's brother. And he began preaching boldly about Jesus, again, rising, raising the ire of those non-believing Jews. And so he again had to escape, this time traveling north to the city of his birth, back to Tarsus, sometime later when Barnabas, Barnabas, this disciple, was sent by the church in Jerusalem to Antioch in Syria, Syrian Antioch, to organize the church there, Barnabas sent for Saul to help him with the work. And, and under their guidance, the church began to, to flourish and grow. But it was never God's intent that Saul stay in one place. Oh, no. Remember, he was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so after a period of time, the Holy Spirit said to the church in Antioch, separate to me Barnabas and Saul. Give them to me for the work that I have for them to do. And thus began Saul's missionary work in the, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. On that first missionary journey, he and Barnabas planted churches in Galatia, again, modern Turkey, in cities like Antioch of Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, remember that one, and, and Derby. You can read about that first journey in Acts chapters 13 and, and 14. And oh, oh, by the way, it was during this journey that Saul changed his, his name and began using his Greek name, Paul, no, no doubt to be more accepted by the Gentiles to whom he had been sent. And now let's talk about this ministry in Lystra. It, it was rather eventful, as most of his uh, missionary work was. He, upon arriving, he encountered a man who was lame from birth. We read he was lame in his feet, had never walked. And he was listening intently to Paul preaching the gospel when Paul looked at him and said, stand upright on your feet. Something this man, you know, had never done. I want you to stand up. And he did. We read that he leaped up and began to walk. It was an amazing miracle. And the crowds, while they were Duly impressed, should have been. So impressed, they began shouting, the gods have become like men and they've come down to us. And they called Barnabas Zeus, who is the leader of the Greek pantheon of gods. And they called Paul Hermes, who in Greek mythology was the son of Zeus, but he was also the messenger of the gods. You see, they called Paul or, uh, 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 Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, now why would they jump to these conclusions? Well, about 50 years before this, a Roman poet named Ovid told an ancient legend about how Zeus and Hermes had visited Lystra once before. They, they, they came incognito, and they asked for lodging from about a 1,000 people, and no one gave it to them until finally an elderly couple welcomed them into their home. The legend says that this couple's home was turned into a magnificent temple, but as for the rest of the people, they were destroyed in a flood. So these 
current people of Lystra were just a little concerned about what appeared to be a second visit from the gods. And so the, the local priest of Zeus showed up with some garlands, you know, kind of like going to Hawaii for Paul and Barnabas. Yeah, that's kind of cool. But then he also showed up with some oxen because he was going to offer sacrifices. And then when these missionaries saw what was happening, they tore their robes, they, they ran into the crowd saying, hey, stop, what are you doing? We're men just like you. But listen, you do need to turn from these vain beliefs and start worshiping the true and the living God. And so they were, under much persuasion, able to stop this idolatrous sacrifice. But... Soon thereafter, some Jews, non-believing Jews from Antioch and Iconium, those two cities that Paul and Barnabas had already preached in, they showed up and they incited the crowds who then stoned Paul, drug him out of the city and left him for dead. Now, would you think about that? Talk about fickle from sacrifice to stoning like in a weekend. Amazing. Now, because we're perhaps familiar with the story, we might, we might just breeze over it. Don't do that. Paul was stoned. Do you know what stoning is? And when you see a bunch of little boys having a dirt ball fight, the crowd would have circled you so there, there was no escape. They would pick up stones the size of baseballs or bigger and begin pelting your body. This was not necessarily a quick death. Welts would begin to rise. Gashes would soon appear. Bones would begin to break. Blood would begin to flow. Still, they would throw rocks until one well-placed stone would perhaps catch him, strike him in the head, and life would cease. They would still throw the stones until he was virtually covered. Then... They dragged Paul out of the city and left him for dead. And where is it that they would have left him? On a road right outside the city gate? No. There was a refuse pile outside every city where they would dump garbage and human waste. In other words, he would have been flung on top of a nasty garbage heap to rot. It's interesting Later, when he wrote a letter to these same Galatians, he said, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The word marks there speaks of tattoos or brands. Well, while the disciples were standing around Paul wondering what they were going to do, Paul stood up. Some, many uh, think that he was actually dead, raised from the dead. I think that's very likely. He went back into the city, probably said something like, you missed me. And then, <laughs> and then he left for Derby the next day, which concluded this first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch to report to the church about their trip. But what is important to note is that these uh, is, is that believers or a church was planted in this town called Lystra. We don't know any of them yet. Later, some false teachers began proclaiming heresy in those churches, and so Paul wrote his first letter to become part of our New Testament, his letter to the Galatians that he wrote to correct error. 
after traveling back uh, to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to take part in the Jerusalem council to settle once and for all whether or not the law of Moses was necessary for salvation. This was the reason the council was called. It's not, by the way. Paul was sent by this council, this time with Silas, to share the results Uh, the decision made by the council to these new churches, but also to plant new churches. And this began the second missionary journey when Paul planted churches in Macedonia and Achaia and and Asia Minor and and cities like these will be familiar to you, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Ephesus before again traveling back to uh, Syrian Antioch to report to the church. Now, this second journey took a bit longer than the first, perhaps as long as three or four years. And after that trip, he wrote letters to Thessalonica and then Corinth letters, which also became part of our New Testament. So, so far we have Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians. Sometime later, after that, he set out on a third missionary journey, wanting to check in on these churches, perhaps plant some more, before he ended up in Corinth for about three months. And while he's hanging out in Corinth, it occurred to him, through these three journeys, the church of Jesus Christ had been planted largely in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, all the way over to Illyricum. The work wasn't done, but hey, the churches were healthy in the east, and they could carry on the work. And it was now time for Paul to go to places beyond. And he began thinking and praying about sharing the gospel in the western part of the empire, perhaps even as far west as Spain. So he writes a letter to the church at Rome. Never been there. He writes this letter to introduce himself, to share his gospel, and to request that his base of operations be moved from Antioch in the east, hey, to Rome in the west. And from there, he would continue his missionary work. So now we have another letter from Paul. And and we've got so many, we start categorizing them. Are you ready? Galatians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians are called his early epistles. Took someone a long time to figure that one out. It's called his early epistles because they were early first one's written. And then we have First and Second Corinthians and Romans, which are called as major epistles because, well, they were like really long. That's why. You have to go to seminary to learn these kind of things. <laughs> well, Paul, Paul's plan was then, after having written that letter to Rome, was to leave Corinth, go to Jerusalem to deliver this offering for for the church there, and then to set out for Spain. But he would stop by Rome on the way. Uh, Incidentally, you might be interested to know that he'd been preaching the gospel for about 20 years uh, at this point, 20 years in ministry. Now, Paul did make it to Rome. In fact, twice that we know of, just not exactly the way that he planned You see, when he got back to Jerusalem to deliver the offering, he was arrested by the temple police and thrown in jail. On on that very night of his arrest, the Lord appeared to him and said, take courage, Paul, it's okay, I got this. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Paul said, that was in my plan. He went to Rome, just not exactly the way that he thought he'd go. The government would pay his passage. 
After a short time, an assassination plot against Paul was uncovered, so they transferred him from Jerusalem to the port city of Caesarea, where he spent two years there. But he was able to share the gospel with governors Felix and Festus and also King Agrippa. Festus, you see, wanted to take him back to Jerusalem for trial, but Paul said, if I go back there, they're going to kill me. So being a Roman citizen, he appealed his case to Caesar. You were allowed to do that, meaning that he would be sent in chains to Rome to stand trial. You may remember the story. After a long journey by ship, including a shipwreck, Paul made it to Rome where he spent two full years proclaiming the gospel. In fact, it was during this time that he wrote the New Testament letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And what do we call those? We call those prison epistles because he wrote them while he was in prison. You you have to be really smart to figure this stuff out. And, And by the way, that all takes us to the end of the book of Acts. Okay, so we're now at the end of Acts chapter 28. But but. But well-founded tradition tells us that after this two-year imprisonment, he was released and did eventually make his way to Spain. Now, we kind of have to fill in the blanks from this point since Luke doesn't tell us in Acts, but, but it was during this time, not exactly sure when, that he wrote two of his final letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. A short time later, perhaps after his return from Spain, he was arrested again. At this time, a full-fledged imperial persecution had broken out against the church, led by the emperor Nero himself, nice guy. And it was during this final imprisonment that he wrote his last letter, 2 Timothy, before, again, tradition tells us that he was beheaded for his faith around 66 or 68 A.D. And so, we have now accounted for all of Paul's letters, by the way, in the order that he wrote them. See, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, early epistles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans, his major epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which we just finished, are those prison epistles, and now 1st Timothy, Titus, and 2nd Timothy, the pastoral epistles. Now, these These final three letters have been called pastoral epistles because they were written to young men who were in some sense pastoring churches. Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus. Titus is in Crete. So Paul writes 1 Timothy and Titus to give instructions to these young pastors. You see, he is is mentoring them. And that's going to become a theme that you're going to hear throughout our study in 1 Timothy, is that Paul mentored Timothy. My question, my regular question of you is going to be, who is mentoring you? And who are you mentoring? Who are you intentionally pouring your life into? See, I kind of look at this picture, I don't know, at first glance it kind of looks like me and Ed Pilkington. But I don't want you to see Ed there. I mean, I want you to see me and maybe Michael Talley or Scott Burns or, or, or Pat Strickland because the Lord knows he needs it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
These are letters that Paul writes to give instruction to young pastors, but don't for a minute think that these letters are only for pastors. Far from it. Pastors can certainly benefit by studying them, uh, but no doubt Paul intended them for the entire church. Now, why do I say that? You see, these three letters were written to individuals. His other 10 letters, even Philemon, was written to the church in his house. The other 10 letters were written to churches. These three were written to individuals. So how can I say that they are written for us? Well, first of all, the obvious answer is they're in the Bible. God superintended that these personal letters to individuals find their way into the Bible that is sitting in your lap so that we can read it and study it. Secondly, they, they, they carry much instruction about the nature of the church, its organization and administration, its purposes, its ministries and responsibilities. And hey, last time I checked, we're all part of the church so we can all benefit from this study. Not, not only that, the, the, the closing line of 1 Timothy, the book we're getting ready to jump into, is a blessing that is written, very interestingly, in the plural. Grace be with you all. See, the idea seems to be that Paul expected Timothy to read uh, this letter to the whole church. So we'll talk more about Titus when we get to his book. But, 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 but let's ask this question, who is this Timothy? Well, let's go back then to Paul's missionary journeys. You remember he went to cities in Galatia in his first journey to include that city of Lystra. During his second journey, he went back through Lystra to deliver the message of the Jerusalem council. And in Acts chapter 16, we read these words. Paul came to, uh, also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timo. Well, that's who Timo is named after, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So we see here that Timothy actually accompanied Paul on that second missionary journey. It's very possible, in fact, even likely, that he had come to faith in Christ during Paul's first trip to Lystra since Paul calls him his son in the faith. Don't know that for sure, but it's likely. Regardless, Paul, as I said, becomes a mentor to this young man for the rest of his life. In, in fact, Timothy becomes a constant companion, becomes a co-worker with Paul. His name appears in incredible 24 times in the New Testament. He accompanied Paul on his second and third missionary journey as well. In addition to Paul calling him his son in the faith, he also calls him a brother and a co-worker, a fellow worker. He is listed as a, quote, co-author in six of Paul's 13 letters. He was with Paul when Paul was in prison in Rome. And, and Hebrews tells us that Timothy himself spent some time in prison. Paul sent him to, to many churches as an official emissary to include Thessalonica and Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus. In fact, he was serving in Ephesus when Paul wrote both 1st and 2nd Timothy. 2nd Timothy, at the very end of his life, Paul sends for Timothy to come to him. When he was at the very end, he wanted this young man with him. 
from what we just read in Acts 16 and what we'll see further in these letters written to him, we learn very quickly the other, some other things about Timothy. Uh, first, his mother uh, Eunice and grandmother Lois were devout Jews who instructed him in the Old Testament scriptures from the time that he was a little baby. It, it also appears that they had come to faith in Christ. We also read that his father was a Greek which is the reason that Timothy needed to be circumcised, not for salvation, the Jerusalem Council made that clear, but so that he would be more acceptable as they preached the gospel to Jews and synagogues. Thirdly, he appears to have been, a, next he appears to have been a young man. Now by that, I know it's real popular to you know, use this to encourage teenagers and stuff like that. We shouldn't think of him as a teenager. Most suggest that he was in his early 20s when he came to faith in Christ, but by the time of 1 Timothy, he was likely in his early to mid-30s. That was young. Be encouraged. If you're in your 40s, maybe not so much encouraged. If you're in your 50s, you're on the way. That's me. He also appears next to have been somewhat reserved. Now, I use that word very intentionally because some call him timid or shy or fearful because of 2 Timothy, the next book, 2 Timothy chapter 1 says, For this reason, Paul says, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, perhaps when he was ordained. For God, Timothy, has not given us a spirit of timidity, timid Timothy, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, of me, a prisoner. And now it seems that here that Timothy did need some encouragement, but listen, who doesn't at various times? I think perhaps Timothy has gotten a bad rap. I mean, the truth is we're going to find that Paul sent him to a troubled church filled with, surprise, surprise, false teaching, and this false teaching was probably coming from the elders. How would you like to be a 30-something-year-old told to go to a church to deal with elders? Of course, he's telling him don't be... Uh, be courageous, because it would require a fair degree of courage. Timothy, lastly, also appears to have had some health issues, which is why Paul encourages the medicinal use of wine for his stomach's sake. So now, what is the occasion that brought about the writing of 1 Timothy? What was Paul's purpose for writing? You see, apparently after his release from prison in Rome, Paul and Timothy had made their way through Crete, where they left Titus, and then to Ephesus, where Paul left Timothy before Paul himself went on to Macedonia. His plan was to come back to Ephesus but in the, soon, but in the event that he was delayed, he wrote this letter. He tells us why he wrote it in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I want you to remember this. I want you to know these verses. He tells us why he wrote it. Look at it. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write, here it is, he tells us, so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. I love that. We, we, we see one obvious and one not so obvious purpose. First, Paul obviously writes to give instruction to Timothy, the, to the Ephesian church, and frankly to us, about how we are to conduct ourselves in the church. This is why some people call this a church manual. It certainly gives some biblical expectations of us. Alliance Bible Fellowship is a local church. I mean, 
Beyond that, notice Paul calls the church the pillar and support of the truth. That's kind of interesting. Why does he throw that in there? Because a second very clear reason that he writes this letter is to encourage Timothy and the church to expose and deal with false teaching. You see, false teaching has always seemed to be with the church. In fact, back in chapter 1, we'll see this later as I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia. I want you to stay at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. We'll look at that next week and try and figure out what this strange doctrine was. But the, his two primary purposes for this letter, look at this, man, they're getting better. We're to give instructions about the nature and administration of the local church and to encourage sound and pure doctrine. Man, I've been waiting 17 years to preach this book. This is an important letter, a very important letter for us today. This is fantastic. So, let me give you a quick outline of the book. This is just going to guide our thoughts through the book. We see the salutation or kind of the greeting and stuff like that. I intended to get to that today, and we're... We're not even going to get to the book today. Now, if you've come in the last three months, you know, um, th this is not unusual. Just, just, just so you know, all right? Uh, now, he also begins dealing with false teachers right out of the blocks, and then he gives some instructions to the church, chapters 2 and 3, and then he goes back to those false teachers to nail them again, and then he gives some instructions for care of certain groups within uh, the church in chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, and he goes to nail those false teachers again, part 3. I can't wait to get to chapter 6 where he nails those false teachers because these false teachers, <laughs> they thought that godliness was a means to financial gain. Like, I'm going to preach chapter 6 and then send it to TBN. <laughs> I can't wait. And then we get to the closing of the letter. Now, as we close this morning, I want to draw your attention to point five on the screen, care for certain groups within the church. And in that section, Paul covers care for older and younger saints, for, for widows, for, for elders, and for slaves. And specifically concerning elders in chapter five, we read these words. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, we'll cover that when we get to it, but notice that he goes on, that he goes on to say, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Now we will find uh, the qualifications of an elder as well, a pastor elder in chapter 3, which include things like being above reproach, being the husband of one wife, which is liter more literally translated being a one-womaned Man, being prudent, respectable, having a good reputation with those outside the church. We'll, we'll cover that a little bit later. 
And now he says those elders who don't do that, in fact, those who in sin and continue in sin, Paul says to rebuke in the presence of all. That means the church, so that the rest, that's the rest of us, will be fearful of sinning. And this is talking about the process of church discipline, which you read about in Matthew chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and church discipline actually applies to everyone. But, but, but here Paul singles out elders and that they are to be leaders um, of and examples in the church. And he says, if they sin and continue to sin, make sure you tell it to the church. Tell the rest. Rebuke them in the presence of all. So the rest of the church will be fearful of sinning. The idea seems to be, wow, they'll leave in disciplined leaders. We better pursue holiness. I have the very difficult and very sad task to do that very thing this morning. 